Welcome to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. I'm JoLynn Shane. In this episode, we will look at what trauma is, when it affects the whole family, and how to deal with it. We'll hear from our guests, Judy Robinette and her sister, Christine Firth, along with trauma psychologist, Dr. Bill McDermott. Thanks to the Essex and District Lions Club for sponsoring this episode. Where there's a need, there's a lion. We first met Judy Robinette in episode one. She's the driving force behind the Better Together podcast. As an advocate for change in society so that we all include people with disabilities, she loves to hear the stories of overcoming inclusion and the stories of the helpers to learn how we are better together. Now, Judy has told us a bit about her own story and a terrible car crash when she was a teen. The doctors told her she would never get an education, get married, or live any kind of productive life. Boy, were they wrong. But now we're going to hear how the trauma of a car accident or any other kind of disability that impacts someone affects the whole family. Welcome, Judy and Christine. Thanks for having us. Nice to meet you. Christine, your sister Judy's car accident was more than half a century ago. That is a long time. Judy was 15 at the time. How old were you? I was 18. So what do you remember from that day? And how did you find out about the accident? I remember the policeman coming to the door to tell my mother that my sister had been in a car accident. At that time, my dad wasn't there but they somehow got together to go to the hospital and I wanted to go too. But I have two brothers at home that are younger. Somebody had to stay home with them. So I stayed home and they left. It was late that night when they got home and when they walked in the door, what they had in their hand was my sister's riding boots and her clothes were full of blood. They just told me that she was very, very seriously injured. And then you can't believe that something has happened. Until I saw that blood, I didn't believe it. But the next day, I had to go to school. There was a track and field event going on, which Judy was to participate in as well. And I was in grade 12. I was on the track team. I went to school, and I had to tell my friends about my sister. It was very difficult because I still didn't believe it. You don't think that something that serious has happened. In fact, I thought for sure when I'm sitting in the bleachers, that was Judy coming to do her bit at the track and field. But no, it wasn't. It wasn't Judy. And I, at four foot seven, (laughs) represented the school in the javelin. I probably threw the javelin the furthest ever because I was just so angry, so frustrated. In fact, I set the record for the longest distance in Javelin that day. My dad had come by the car to watch me throw the Javelin that day. And the thing that I remember, he was very, my dad was a very strong, personable person. But I saw something different there. And what he did in that Ford Fairlane, a 1966 car, he pulled the seatbelt out that we tucked in because it was actually in the way, you know. And he wore the seatbelt that day. Never in my life had I ever seen him do that. None of us did. So since Judy couldn't compete, my guess is you had to be the one who had to tell the teachers that she couldn't compete, right? Yes. You know, and I don't recall how I did it. Their response, 
I really don't recall that, and I don't know why. It's not something that I chose to remember, I guess. What I remembered is that she just wasn't there, and I still didn't believe it. It was still... It just sounds like so much trauma. Yeah, disbelief. Like, Judy, that's not going to happen to her. Now, both of your parents have since passed away. Uh, Judy, what were you told about your parents' reaction on that first day? Well, we we didn't talk about it a lot, and I got little bits and pieces. Every surgery I had to go to, I got a little bit more of the story. So my mom, when she went with the policeman, she had hoped that the injuries would be minor, that this was just overblown, I would be fine, things would be okay, she'd bring me home, and she would really not have to tell anything to my dad. When she got in the police car, the policeman asked her which way to the hospital. She knew, but she couldn't talk. She just waved her hand and pointed. She was traumatized at that moment, trying to figure out what was going to happen. They had to spend the night there. They were told many times, Mom would not call my dad. But the doctors came out and said to her, she may not make it. You have to call your husband. You have to bring him in. And they sat there. Uh, My surgery was almost 10 hours. But they had to leave the hospital because they had to go back and talk to Chris and the boys. Their worry was when they um, would go to school, they might hear something. And they wanted to tell them themselves. And my mom said when she walked in the door, she saw my school books on the table. And that's when she broke down. She started to cry then. Hmm. Christine, how how often were you able to see her in the hospital? I didn't see Judy until the night after the track meet. And I went to the hospital and I walked up to the floor and I looked in her room and it was horrific. She thinks she was in a coma, but the coma that she was in, she was restless and she was tossing and her face was just a mess, all of it. It was just horrific that my sister, my young sister, was just, it was devastating. I could not go in the room. I stood out on the hall, and all the time Judy was in the hospital, I could not go in the room. I went every night to see her, but just from the hallway, because she was just not, it was just a difficult thing for me to accept. Anger, frustration, sympathy. I, I've never seen anyone that devastated. Now, Judy, when did you find out that she had been coming to the hospital but not coming in to see you? Two weeks ago. We had never talked. I never knew. I didn't know that she hadn't come or that she had come. I just knew people didn't want to look at me. I did know that. It was hard. Uh, my own mom never looked at my face. Never. She looked around me. She could not put the medication in. You just could not look at me. Pretty tough. So how much have you two talked about this over the years? Very rare. Just recently, to be very honest with you, it was not something that was talked about. Once Judy came home from the hospital, the actual accident, we never talked about it. I I believe a lot of time when things happened at our home, you just get on with it. It's done. Okay, now you deal with it. Maybe it was the times, you know, that was a long time ago. The 60s were very different. 
it was an accident. You you just, I don't know. It's just who we are. What was it like for you to watch your sister recover? I knew Judy was a very strong girl, and you wanted to help, but you didn't know what to do. You just were there. You be there. You would watch her with the crutches and one eye, and her balance sucked the big time. She worked so hard at it. She's a determined, strong, she was going to get through this. But what I could do, I don't know. I I don't feel, I didn't know what to do. You just be there. At the time, it was your parents, it was the doctors, it was another surgery. That's how it was for for me. You must have felt that support from her when you were when you were recovering, did you? I felt her there. Yeah. I felt that she was there for me. My dad gave me the sense I needed to move forward. My sister gave me the feeling I was not alone. It must have been incredibly challenging for your parents. They needed to make decisions. They needed to figure out how to run the household. They had three other kids. What do you know about how hard it was for them? I think for me... I think my dad suffered the most, and he was one that was very quiet about it. He was not one to have a conversation, but I think he was very hurt that this happened to his daughter. My mom, she was a little bit more emotional. She cried, and she was angry. That's what I remember. I think she moved from hopeless to angry that you can do this, and she would get mad, not just at Judy. At the other kids. As well. I don't ever remember my brothers, though, being impacted as much, but I think it's because I'm the oldest in the family, of course. You set the example, and you're not going to be weepy and cry and poor me. That's not how we lived at all. Judy, did you have a sense of how hard it was for your parents? Well, we grew up in a family where we were not to show emotion. If we fell and broke your arm, there is no crying. There's nothing. You were not to cry. You were to just go on and be resilient. But one of the surgeries I had, my mom told me, did you ever notice that your dad was taking a lot of baths? No, I didn't notice that. And she said, that's where your dad cried tears, cried horrendously, left the water running so nobody would hear him cry. My dad, they lived through war. We have to remember, these people lived through war, and they, they were at that time told, put it back. It's done. It's gone. Let's get on with your life. To think my dad would cry like that. But in my mind, always, I know my dad had a very special place in his heart. Because with my face, looking the way he did, he had a picture of me like that in his wallet so that he could be close. Sorry, guys, he didn't carry any of you, just me. (laughs) So it was, it meant a lot to him. But he wanted me to grow. He wanted me to succeed. There was no doubt in that. Well, this has been a powerful story. And in many ways, it would be a common one for families that are severely affected when one member is disabled or becomes disabled. Psychologists say it's important to recognize that trauma and to deal with it in order to bring healing to all. We'll hear more about that in a minute. 
thanks to the Essex and District Lions Club for sponsoring this episode. Where there's a need, there's a lion. This is Better Together, and I'm JoLynn Shane. We're speaking with Judy Robinette, founder of this podcast, Better Together and A Life Worth Living, an organization that advocates for inclusion for people with disabilities. Her sister, Christine Firth, is also with us, sharing how Judy's traumatic car accident affected her and their whole family. Now, you have both talked about how your family didn't talk about the accident, We're going to bring in another voice to this conversation. This is Dr. Bill McDermott, a trauma psychologist, and I've had a chance to listen to parts of Judy's extensive interview with him for A Life Worth Living, and now we're going to have a chance to hear how he describes trauma. We have to define trauma by the internal event, not by the external event. So we may be with someone who uh, has been in a minor car crash, And also, later in the day, be with someone who has been viciously beaten and sexually assaulted and presume inadvertently and inaccurately that the traumatic reaction to one of those events wouldn't be as severe as to the other. We never can take that for granted. Dr. McDermott also says there's a reason why families often feel the impact of trauma so acutely. Because we have a traumatized individual but we have vicariously traumatized family members. These are people who are close enough that they feel that there's an emotional contagion and there's an empathic strain. They they feel the pain of the injured person, of the family member. And as they take that into themselves, inevitably, by virtue of their closeness and their love and affection and loyalty and concern for the injured person, they become debilitated to larger or lesser degrees themselves. And further, Dr. McDermott sums up the benefits of pulling together versus the dangers of pulling apart. Families have two ways to go under traumatic uh, events. They can fragment or they can become more cohesive. The more a family can pull together for each other and their mutual support and the support of the person injured, uh, the better off everyone is by far because it dilutes the intensity of the uh, fear. It dilutes the intensity of the anger. It uh, dilutes the intensity of the horror, perhaps, or disgust, even. Families that are able to pull together are going to be much, much, much more helpful to each other and to the injured person than families which fragment. Christine, from your perspective, How well would you say that the family pulled together after Judy's accident? I think what I remember, we got on with our lives. Judy was part of the lives we lived as a family. It's just there was no hemming and hawing. It was, let's get it done. That's what we have to do. If your job is bigger than it used to be because you don't have your sister helping you, then you just did it. There was no whining, no complaining. It was, let's get on with it. So I wonder if this would surprise you that Dr. McDermott refers to this as a conspiracy of silence, and he says it's not uncommon for families. No, but in in hindsight, I, I wish we would have talked about it more, but that's not who we were. That's not the family we were. 
So we're going to have a chance now to hear from him and to get a sense of why this happens. When family members uh, are more burdened by their own fears than uh, motivated by their concern about the other family members, we can fall into a conspiracy of silence. If, if we don't talk about it, if we're not expressive about it, if we're not specific and concrete, I won't feel as uh, bad because these are very intensely emotional happenings. And we have our own fears, we have our own suffering, and we have the vicarious suffering of our loved ones. And conspiracies of silence develop all the time between people because they have apprehensions that, and catastrophic expectations that talking about it, that acknowledging it, that putting the big old purple elephant in the middle of the living room and saying, oh, look, there's a big old purple elephant in the middle of the living room will cause them a tremendous amount of personal distress and might cause the other person distress. So conspiracies of silence sometimes come from a very good-hearted attempt to prevent people from feeling badly uh, if they aren't at the moment. Sometimes conspiracies of silence come from plain old denial, which is not just another river in Egypt. If I make believe it's not here and I don't address it, I won't have to contend with it. Well, which is a folly, and we know that, because those things don't go away. Issues that are painful, issues that need to be addressed, will require us to address them one way or another. And the more able we are to get our gumption together to speak clearly and concisely about the specifics of a painful issue, the better off we all are, because therein is the opportunity for ventilation of our feelings, validation of those feelings, connection between people, healing presence, compassion, empathy, all of those things we know heal people require, first of all, that we acknowledge this is what hurts, this is how it hurts, and let's face it together. Judy, Christine, looking back, what do you think would have made things easier for you? Who wants to go first? For me, where I am in my life now and how I've, I think conversation, I think we should have shared more because I do share more now. We talk, Judy and I, never about the accident, but about other things more now. And I think I would hope that it would have been better for Judy, not knowing what we did. We just do things and don't say anything. Maybe it would have been easier for you. Judy, what would you say? I think for me, um, saying the accident was done and over when I had 33 more surgeries, uh, it wasn't done and over. Every time I'm readjusting my life, trying to fit my life between major surgeries and that was hard. I think I was angry that I had to continue to go back and be made and remade, um, trying to... Actually, I was on reading week, and they had to remove my artificial eye. They had to put a whole new socket in because there was an infection that was going to my brain. Guys, don't you know I'm trying to get my master's here? So that was my, my week off, my reading week, but that was frustrating. And I think I needed to talk about that. And I think when Chris visited from time to time, we just would mention a little bit. But what was always constant, always constant, my sister was there. 
We didn't have to talk. I knew she was there. I knew she loved me. Even though I was a mess, she loved me. The only other surgery that I remember, Judy, for an experience for me is when she had her back surgery. At that time, they put her on a striker frame, which was a circle bed, and she was on that It felt like an eternity for me. I can't imagine for you what that must have been like. But they would bring in student nurses to practice on her, to tighten her up and then wheel her around. And I thought, oh, my God. But there was one older nurse that was the kindest. She got the most uncomfortable thing done as fast as she could and then moved Judy. It was the student nurses that were learning that was difficult. She ate there. She peed there. She never... (laughs) A week, Judy, was it you were on that striker frame? At least a week? Oh, I think it was about three or four at that time because I had four of them done. My God. Like how things have improved. um, Things are better now. It's amazing. And she looks so cute. Judy, she looks so cute with her crutches and her little patch on her eye. She had this cute little haircut. I thought, you know, she's going to be okay. Really, she's going to be okay. Uh, it was funny because I had uh, I had to have plastic surgery, obviously. Uh, this is a chin, actually. This isn't my eye. You're, you're pointing to your eyebrow. Yeah, this is a chin. Anyway, um, my doctor came in, and uh, I always had a rule. I will not go under anesthetic until I'm assured my doctor is there. So Dr. Hecadon walks in and he rolls his hands together and he says, ah, 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 the bride of Hecadon. <laughs> <laughs> so the black humor is so nice. I just had so many wonderful people around me. I don't know that everybody has that opportunity, but let me tell you, him doing that made such a big difference for me. I've had 33 surgeries since my accident. To have people so kind and generous around me is, is amazing. It's amazing. It means a lot. Difficult for her coming home after some of those surgeries, though, especially with her teeth when she had to go to the dentist. At that time, we didn't have the specialist that we had now. It was pretty painful, yeah. some of the surgeries. And you just, you just felt, felt for her. But she is a very tough, resilient positive. She only sees the positive in things. And I think that accident has escalated that. That's why after 20 some years, Judy, you're still in this. That's good. <laughs> so Christine, when you hear about these these stories, these, these things that she remembers, these people and the, the small acts of kindness all these years later, even your own uh, help for her, what what's that like for you to hear that? I'm amazed. I, I didn't realize the impact small things make. And I think telling stories, others will learn from that. Even though you don't know what to do, there are very small things that mean the world to the person that is traumatized. I think telling stories is exactly the way you learn. So can I ask a question here? Sure. Chris, did I help you at all? Oh, You made me feel so proud of you, Judy. I felt that your accident was in May. I graduated high school in June, and I went to work in July, and I knew you were going to be okay. I just knew it was going to be all right. I watched you grow, and I felt you're going to be okay. It felt good to me. Not 
what I did, but who you are. For other families that find themselves in similar situations dealing with trauma, it might actually help them to hear from Dr. McDermott again on the timetable for healing. Sometimes we get frustrated when a friend or a family member just won't snap out of it and they won't move on, uh, which again affects the loved ones. First of all, we have to check ourselves. We have to say, well, is it my timetable or that person's timetable? And we say sometimes we can't push the river. It will flow as it's supposed to. And if someone is healing and going about step-by-step-by-step, uh, by step by step, reorganizing themselves, reorganizing their thoughts, reorganizing their feelings, and are, are being successful, then we have to discipline, our, discipline ourselves not to impose our timetable on them. So that's the first caveat about this whole stuck notion. Stuck that we have to pay attention to and respond to is someone's pain and suffering not changing. People who are in pain, people who are anguished, people who feel very badly about themselves, people whose uh, worldview has become uh, despairing or cynical or, or toxic in its anger um, and remain there day after day after day and week after week after week no matter uh, what types of self-talk they try to uh, attempt with themselves to feel better about themselves and feel better about the world in general. Those people are stuck. Those people are mired in fears, anxieties, resentments, disappointments, disillusionments. They become uh, maybe cynical. How do we help people with that? We help people with that by bringing us to them first. We don't abandon people who are stuck, although they're very, very difficult to be with. We don't make excuses to be busy with other things because we don't want to be with them and uh, get a headache uh, from our, our frustration uh, and disappointment in their staying mired in their despair, perhaps, or anger. I think people who are very angry and stay very angry day after week after month are the people that are most difficult to be with and most uh, difficult to assist. How do we know when people are turning a corner from despair, anguish, maybe uh, uh, loss of hope, to um, healing? Well, they begin to become quieter in themselves. They begin to be able to find some peace. They begin talking with uh, uh, positive self-messages instead of negative self-messages. They begin to say accurate and positive things about themselves. I am a good and valuable person. I do have competencies. By telling your story, the parts where there were helpers and I suppose even the times when there were none, what do you hope that people will take away I hope that they take away they can make a difference. I hope they can take away that being together, both the person who has been traumatized and yourself, that it makes a difference to have that help. I hope that they take away that the whole family is traumatized. And rather than judging or criticizing or wondering or if you stand alongside them, support them, if you just listen, there are some things that you will know that you can step in to do, such as the cake that was made for my brother. You can just step in. 
think what you would want for yourself. You know, the person that's traumatized, the disabled person, it's very hard to keep vocalizing what they want because they feel vulnerable. If you reject them, it's hard. And sometimes they don't know what you could do for them. So they have a long list, but what can you do? So I think it's important for us to listen to these stories because I think they'll give you the clues that you need to solve the puzzle. Thank you, Judy, and thank you, Christine. I'm so glad you shared your story with us and with each other. Our thanks, too, to trauma psychologist Dr. Bill McDermott for his insight. Judy Robinette is the founder of A Life Worth Living and this podcast, Better Together. We will be bringing you many more stories of the struggles of people living with disabilities, how they overcome, and how life is better when we help. Because there is always hope and a way to include everyone, no matter what they've been through. I'm JoLynn Shane. Know who you are, decide where you'll go, and choose a life worth living. This was Better Together. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to the Essex and District Lions Club, where there's a need, there's a lion.